0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I have with me James Turner, Kavanaugh Professor of Humanities Emeritus at Notre Dame University. We will be discussing his book Philology The Forgotten Origins of the Modern Humanities published by Princeton University Press. Philology, the study of language, was for centuries synonymous with humanistic intellectual life. Turner provides a detailed and fascinating study of that traces philology's beginning in Greek and Roman speculation about language and follows it to the early 20th century. At the Library of Alexandria, Greeks speculated about language, invented rhetoric, analyzed text, and created grammar. Roman diffusion and Christian adaptation spread the influence of philology. The medieval scholars kept it alive until the Renaissance, when humanists gave it a new life only to escape the most toxic aspects of the Reformation. By the 19th century, philology covered three distinct modes of inquiry. Textual philology included the study of ancient and biblical literature, language theories of origin, and comparative historical studies of structure and language systems. All philologists held to the belief that history was key to understanding the diversity and change in language. Comparative methods and genealogical understanding accompanied historical analysis. These methods applied not only to texts but also to material objects, structures, art, people groups, and eventually became the foundation for the modern disciplines of anthropology, history, art history, linguistics, literary and religious studies we know today. Turner points to the need to reintegrate scholarly erudition away from insular disciplines and recover the expansive and humanistic reach of philology. Here's my conversation with James Turner. Now, let me introduce you to the author, James Turner. Jim, thank you for coming to the the show.
1: I'm very glad to be here.
0: And thank you for engaging me with me on this conversation. Your book covers a lot of ground, centuries, actually. And it appears to be a call to reintegrate the humanities from its disciplinary straitjacket. But before we talk about the implications of your book... Tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write philology.
1: Okay. Um, there's a deep backstory, which I think might help uh, potential readers of the book to understand better how I came to write it. Uh, when I was in college, I always expected to be a lawyer, to go back to Texas where I grew up, to go into politics, but in my senior year... I found myself getting kind of more and more interested in history, and um, I wrote a senior honors thesis. And that experience of research and writing uh, really changed my my course. And I so I went to graduate school instead of going to law school. Um, I uh, went to graduate school intending to study Southern political history for no better reason than that my uh, undergraduate honors thesis was on politics in late 19th century Texas. But when I got to graduate school, my first year, I realized that I really uh, had a different motive. I I really had gone to graduate school because I didn't want to give up a life devoted to books and ideas and learning new stuff. And so I decided to become an intellectual historian uh, because I thought, rightly or wrongly, that... That was an area where you could do pretty much anything you wanted to you could focus on ideas in any time or place and uh, and and so I shifted to intellectual history um, and but I think because of that particular motive for doing intellectual history, I have always written books that kind of range pretty widely pretty far back and they and i and kind of range over a number of different topics. And so what's happened in my career is that uh in writing one book, I would find myself getting grabbed by something else. And that would be the next book. Um I wrote in the in the late 80s and 90s uh a biography of a guy called Charles Elliot Norton, um who was uh he was many things, that's why I got interested in him, but he was, among other things, the major progenitor of the humanities as new disciplines in American universities in the later 19th century. Um, And I came to realize in writing about that part of his career that uh, he approached uh, the history of art, uh, 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 English poetry, uh, archaeology, a whole variety of topics that he worked on and wrote about, uh, thinking like a textual philologist. That is to say, he would approach the objects of his study, whether that was uh, medieval church building or uh, 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 ancient Greek temples, as if those objects were texts. And to understand them, you had to put them in their historical context and to uh, 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 then see why they were important, why they mattered now. You had to uh, shift back and forth between that historical context and, the, and, and their, their meanings for the people who made them and their potential meanings for us because Norton worked as a philologist, I got interested in philology in trying to understand philology and that and its connection to the humanities as those exist in modern higher education and so that that ultimately dragged me into this book and uh, I just said okay i want to find out about philology I want to learn some new stuff and so I it, I kept moving further and further back in time to try to understand it. And so I found myself uh, uh, really beginning with the ancient Greek world and uh, varieties of learning and what we now call a humanistic scholarship then.
0: So what is, what is philology?
1: <laughs> That's a very good question. Today, philology is understood almost entirely as the study of texts, particularly ancient texts. So you have classical philologists who try to understand and correct the texts that descend to us from ancient Greece and Rome. You have biblical philologists who try to understand and make more accurate the texts that comprise the Bible. Um, But in the 19th century, when philology gave birth to the modern humanities, as I eventually came to understand, uh, philology had much broader significance. It was all studies of language as a phenomenon, apart from specific languages, but just trying to understand what language is, the study of specific languages and language families, uh, such as the Indo-European family, which a lot of attention was concentrated in the 19th century, and textual philology, the studies of text, not just ancient text, but uh, uh, medieval, early modern, and modern texts. So that's philology.
0: Well, let's go back what did the Greeks and Romans think they were doing? What was pathology huh. for them? <laughs> yeah. Let's start from the very beginning and kind of work our way through.
1: Yeah. Uh, they were, um, uh, trying to understand texts. And this has a lot to do with the fact that books are invented, uh, in the Western world, at least in ancient Greece and then adopted by ancient Rome. So they they got all these manuscripts of books, uh, Homer the most important for the ancient Greeks especially um and they they've because of the multiplication of manuscripts all of course done by copying by hand lots of mistakes get introduced into those manuscripts so the first task of ancient Greeks and Romans was to uh, uh sort out the text and try to figure what was the correct form of the text.
0: So this is a very technical ex- exercise. This is not an interpretive inter- exercise at this it, point.
1: It starts as a very technical exercise. It quickly leads into interpretation because you're not, only, once you've corrected the text, once you think you've got what the author originally wrote, uh, then you've got to try to understand the text. That in turn leads into a historical dimension. You've got to uh, uh, understand the culture as we would now say that produced the text in order to understand the text but put simply you know, if you want to understand uh, Homer well you need to understand something about the archaic Greek world uh, that, that Homer's text came from um, and that in turn generates among these ancient scholars a fascination with the past in all of its aspects and so they're 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 probing into the past in a variety of ways.
0: So what was their idea about language? They have a very different concept of language. Oh, they were curious about it.
1: They were very curious about it. And uh, the process of understanding language goes along with the process of trying to understand the text written in those languages. Um, and so it was the ancient Greeks, uh, uh, in the ancient Hellenistic world, uh, two or three centuries before uh, the birth of Christ, it was in that world that grammar was invented as a way of trying to understand language. Because you got to understand language if you're going to do the same with the text written in So you've got grammar, you've got rhetoric, which is the most important part of education, did not play a huge role in scholarship in those days, but it was uh, connected with textual studies, with the study of language as a phenomenon.
0: What about the connection to politics?
1: Um, in, in rhetoric,
0: persuasion.
1: Th- yeah, yeah, in in uh, in the study of rhetoric, uh, uh, that that emerges really because of politics. It first appears in uh, ancient Greece, and especially in Athens, um, at the time when the Athenians are moving to a kind of political order that can loosely be called democratic. Um, uh, as long as you understand women and slaves and so forth. They're all excluded from this. But citizens have to uh, make the decisions and you, if you want something to happen, if you want somebody to be convicted of a crime, like Socrates, or do you want uh, some uh, uh, a particular decision to be made about going to war or not going to war, you have to persuade your fellow citizens. And that's the the origins of rhetoric really. Um, and that uh, if you look at ancient Rome which picks up rhetoric from ancient Greece the ancient Greek world um, then uh, you see the same phenomenon it's very closely connected with the political order you have someone like Cicero who writes a treatise on rhetoric while also being uh, per, you know perhaps the greatest orator of the ancient uh, Roman world
0: now you also introduce into this Greek Roman you bring in Jewish and Christian contributions to uh, philology. Mm-hmm. How did that affect the reading of their sec- sacred sacred texts?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the uh, ancient rabbis, who are the first ones really uh, to study uh, 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 the Bible as a uh, uh, a text uh, that that needs to be uh, uh, understood, possibly corrected, interpreted, um, they. Uh, bring to that project many of the same skills that, uh, the, uh, Greeks of the ancient Hellenistic world had, had pioneered. Um, and it's, that's a natural move because after all, they, they come from the same part of the world. You know, they come from, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, ancient Christian scholars, uh also very uh self-consciously sometimes borrow the techniques of ancient roman scholars um to understand their emerging new testament uh, as well as to understand the hebrew bible which of course they come to call the old testament and they know it primarily in its greek translation uh the septuagint so you you uh transfer into what was emerging as christendom that is to say the uh, uh uh christianized roman empire both eastern and western you transfer into that christian intellectual heritage uh and the by then suppressed and marginalized jewish intellectual heritage you transfer into that those uh skills perfected by um the, the ancient hellenistic world and the ancient roman world and and so Philological studies, linguistic studies, become an important part of the uh, uh, Christian uh, uh, heritage that, that sort of shapes uh, uh, our world and we
0: inherit. Now we get into uh, the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. the Renaissance, and the Reformation, mm-hmm. and how philology really survived Mm -hmm. Those three different Mm -hmm. aspects, first in the Middle Ages, Mm -hmm. how the monks kept it alive. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. Philology, in a sense, fell on hard times in the Middle Ages. Uh, It uh, it certainly did survive. Uh, There were, especially in the earlier Middle Ages up to the 12th century, say, uh, uh, a fair number of scholars, most of them uh, monks or clerics, uh, who were actually interested in the study of texts in the same way that the ancient Greeks and Romans had been, though they were often paying attention to different texts, especially the Bible. But in the High Middle Ages, um, the very kind of empirical, concrete study of texts gave way to an interest in philosophy, in more abstract ideas. Um, and uh, the a study of texts sort of fell into abeyance, um, in the high middle ages.
0: In your book, you make a very clear point. that philosophy is, is a different branch of knowledge.
1: Yes. It, which is not to say that it had no influence, that there was no, uh,
0: cross-pollination,
1: cross-pollination, exactly a good term, but, but that it was a, a very different in approach and, uh, philosophers often, not always, but often uh, looked down on philology as a kind of second-rate form of knowledge. Uh,
0: okay, so you've got the, what happens in the Renaissance? Um, what
1: happens is that uh, uh, first in northern Italy, um, and then on the other side of the Alps, uh, learned individuals become more and more interested, again, in the ancient Roman heritage at first, and then the ancient Greek heritage and uh so they're they're going back to what they saw as a uh again to use a modern term a culture that was intellectually superior to the middle ages um and they want to recover that ancient world
0: so is this sort of the the story of decline all over <laughs> all over again uh, the idea that Everybody thinks that what was before them was always better than what they have today. <laughs> well, not what was
1: before them, because... What was way, they, way, way before them. before them, because they, they looked down on the Middle Ages. They invented the term in the Middle Ages precisely in order to define a period of decline between the, the late Roman Empire and their own times. Um, and it was a pejorative term at first. Um, uh, but in order to recover that ancient world, they had to... Um, in their own minds, recover the language spoken then, which at first means classical Latin, Latin. Um, in trying to recover that language, they of course have to recover the texts that survive in that language. Uh, they devote themselves to searching out ancient texts and then to correcting them, amending them, uh, so they can uh, find out of these five copies of a particular oration of Cicero, which one of them is closest to what Cicero actually said? And so you're back to textual study, you're back to linguistic study, because they're trying to speak and write the same Latin that was uh, spoken and written in the classical world. One of the things they discover is that there is no single form of classical Latin. The Latin that Cicero wrote, for example, is quite different in some ways from the Latin that wrote.
0: So this before the p- printing press, <laughs> uh, it was very difficult to keep uh, text clean mm-hmm. from, w- from copy to copy because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you're doing it. It's all being done manually. Mm-hmm. Now, the, what time period are we talking about here? The High Middle Ages. We're talking about the 13th century, 13th, 14th century. Okay, is is this is this not the time when um, is the West discovering Eastern texts, um, Sanskrit and.
1: Uh, that comes a little bit later, okay. uh, because in the in the 13th and 14th century, Europe is still or what we now call Europe is still uh, relatively uh, weak compared to the great Asian civilizations, especially China. Um, it's only uh, in the early modern period when Europe begins to expand into other parts of the world. The voyages of so called discovery, for example, of the Americas, which introduces a whole new set of languages to understand. The discoveries of uh, the the attempt to open up a route to the spice trade uh, by sea uh, into uh, what they call the East Indies. Uh, That brings them into contact with Indian civilization, brings them into contact uh, eventually with Chinese civilization. So they're discovering then a whole new set of texts, a whole new set of languages that they were mostly, not entirely, but mostly unfamiliar with during the Middle Ages. Uh, and that's a phenomenon really of the 16th and 17th and 18th
0: centuries. Okay, so what happens, let's go back, uh, back up a little bit. What happens in the Renaissance, uh, which is this re- rediscovery of the ancients, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, and then you've got the Reformation coming along. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: that creates... Uh, uh, a a whole new climate for philology especially textual philology um uh but also the study of languages per se a whole new climate for a couple of reasons first of all there are all these arguments about doctrine separating protestants and catholics as they came to be known and uh those arguments very often go back to the bible they also go back to the history of the ancient church, um, what's going on in the first centuries of Christianity, because Protestants and Catholics are claiming very different things about the proper uh, structure and role of the church.
0: Now, the Bible at this point had, uh, before the Reformation, had accumulated a lot of commentary, right, mm-hmm. in the sidelines.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sorry,
0: side, sidebars.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Um which was loaded with doctrine mm-hmm. and speculation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. which was one of the things that Luther, uh, meant when he said, you know, sola scriptura. He yep. meant the Bible alone without all this exactly. commentary beside it. Exactly. Exactly. And part of the struggle here in, during the Reformation was cleaning up the biblical text to what they thought would become to the pure essential mm-hmm. text. Mm-hmm.
1: And so one of the things that happens then, and Catholics cling to those uh, early Latin translations known as the Vulgate, uh, Protestants want to tend to go back to the Hebrew text of the Old, Old Testament, as they call it. Um, and so the study of Hebrew becomes more and more important. Uh, and one of the phenomenon of the Reformation era is the emergence of uh, what are called trilingual colleges, uh, uh, in which the key languages are Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Um, and Harvard, for example, is founded as a collegium trilingue. Uh, it, in 17th century Harvard, students were taught Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. And it's only in the 18th century that the study of Hebrew kind of falls away.
0: Well, did the, um, the Reformation uh, situation did this cause them to turn more to Jewish uh, scholars, uh, the, even though there was a lot of animosity against right. Jewish people. Right, but the Jewish scholars have been working on their Hebrew text for centuries.
1: They couldn't. The 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 Christian scholars, by and large, a couple exceptions of this, couldn't stand Jews and couldn't do without them. <laughs> they needed the rabbinic uh, learning in order to. Uh, understand their own Old Testament. Um, So that's one thing that encourages the study of of Hebrew. Um, It also leads to uh, more and more understanding among Christians, still very much laced with with venom, but more and more understanding of Judaism, uh, its rituals, its uh, beliefs, and it's ancient history. Uh, it's in the study of those early centuries of Christianity that Christian scholars first come to realize that in ancient Judaism, there was a of the probably the majority of ancient Jews couldn't read or understand Hebrew. They were Greek speakers in the Eastern Mediterranean world. There. Bible was the Greek translation uh, that early Christians had picked up on. And so there's this whole new understanding of the history of ancient Judaism. And literally, uh, people just had forgotten, so to speak. They did not know that there was this ancient Greek Jewish culture from which uh, Christianity took most much of its shape.
0: Now, what was the problem that scholastic scholars had with philology?
1: Um, they thought it was uh, uh, much less important than uh, uh, the uh, universal truths that could be achieved through philosophy and through logical deduction. So there's a, they, they see a pretty strong opposition between the process of uh, logical reasoning from what they would have thought of as unquestioned premises to uh, certain universal truths versus the kind of sloppy, empirical, imperfect, philological study of ancient texts.
0: Or even going through historically.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Where where does Erasmus fit in this? (laughs) Uh,
1: He fits in in very complicated ways. He was uh, the most influential um, early uh, scholar of the Greek New Testament. Now, remember, the church had used the Latin Vulgate, had favored the Latin Vulgate over the original Greek and Hebrew versions of uh, the uh, New Testament and Old Testament. Erasmus said, if you want to understand the New Testament, if you want to get it right, you have to go back to the Greek originals. And and so he produced, this is a complicated story, he produced the first published Greek New Testament uh, in the early modern world. Not the first printed version, because at the same time he was working, and working by our standards pretty sloppily, there was a group of scholars in Spain uh, uh, who were also... Working to produce a multilingual or polyglot Bible, um, and uh, and they had they had actually tr- uh, produced an edition of the Greek New Testament before Erasmus did. It was printed, but it couldn't be published without the Pope's approval, and that came a little bit later.
0: Now Erasmus was a very was loyal to the Catholic Church. Yes, he was always antagonistic, or, or Luther and him were always. Kind of dueling.
1: That's right. <laughs> intellectual,
0: <Erasmus>. intellectual.
1: <laughs> exactly. Though Erasmus was like Luther, a reformer.
0: Right, but but he stayed within the church. He did, uh, and so the church, uh, the Catholic Church, saw his work as sort of aiding the Protestants.
1: Yeah, they they did because, because he's
0: trying to go back to some mm-hmm. pure. Mm-hmm original version mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. the New Testament without all the explanations and mm-hmm. doctrinal sidelines.
1: And he's undercutting the church's preference for the Latin Bible. And the Council of Trent, when the church tries to sort of figure out what it's going to do uh, in response to the Protestant challenge, the church reaffirms the authority and primacy of the Vulgate of the Latin version. So uh, Erasmus is caught as it were between the two camps.
0: Let's. Let's go back to, get back to our topic, philology. At this point, humanistic scholarship, is there a, a notion of a unity of knowledge?
1: Um, uh, yes, there is. Uh, the, that
0: somehow all these contradictions and things that don't seem to add up, if we just keep working on it, we're going to figure it out. It's all going to be one thing that's going to make sense. Yes,
1: yeah. Um, in, in a sense, you can see their attitude as... Like the attitude of a lot of modern natural scientists, that is to say, we're going to, we don't understand dark energy at all. We have a very limited understanding of dark matter. But scientists are fairly confident that eventually all of this will hang together in a single coherent view of the world uh, and maybe a lie far in the future. But And that's, that's how they think of this, except that it's uh, not just the natural world. Uh, that there's it's human, some,
0: human history human and
1: history, human culture
0: and, and language mm-hmm. that all uh, I noted the uh, the language trees that they were mm-hmm. constructing with showing where all the languages came from and how they brand- It was kind of an organic view of, of language. Exactly. OK, exactly. now. So but now we get into the early the, that that first early. There's so much there. We could talk about that all day, but I want to get into the 19th century so we can get to the modern day. What did uh, philology mean uh, in the early nineteenth century?
1: Well, it meant, um, of course, textual philology, which is mostly what we've been talking about—the study of texts. It meant the study of languages and language families. And by the beginning of the nineteenth century, uh, those, the, uh, those. The, the range of languages under serious study has enormously expanded as a result of European expansion into the rest of the world. You've got uh, American Indian languages. You've got Sanskrit. Uh, you've got uh, uh, this, the serious study of, uh, for example, the Germanic fam- family of languages. It's part of the Indo-European family. So you've got a worldwide set of languages to study. Um, and trying to understand the connections among them and trying to understand where connections don't exist, trying to understand the different structures. Um, so that's also a very important part of 19th century philology. So you've got the study of texts, study of languages, and then you've got, in the 18th century especially, uh, a lot of speculation about the origin of language. About the sort of fundamental nature of language uh, by some of the, by people who remain very famous, like Adam Smith and Rousseau. Um, and in the 19th century, that begins to develop into what we would now call theoretical linguistics. And so you've got all three of those aspects of the study of languages and text: textual philology study of languages and language families, the study of la- the phenomena of language itself.
0: So you've got this early 19th century philology is pretty still pretty much intact. It has some different mm-hmm. uh, aspects, mm-hmm. but humanistic scholars all see themselves as sort of working within this broader umbrella, Yes, right? Yes. And uh, they're crossing uh, they're going across. Yes.
1: Uh, and by the early 19th century, some people devote themselves pretty much to only one aspect of this large universe of philological knowledge. Other people are still going back and forth among different things.
0: Okay. Now, we're talking here about, we're, we're not to disciplines yet. We All don't right. have disciplines. We have Humanistic scholars working with the tools of philology in a variety of different ways, and they're applying it to not just text, they're applying it to people group, art, uh, structures, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anything that can be read,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: quote-unquote. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and it's important also to understand that the phenomenon of, the, of, of of the study of the material relics of the past had always formed a part of a larger philological enterprise during the early modern period that came under the label of antiquarianism, which in a sense gave birth to modern archaeology and art history. Um, and so that's part of the philological universe, even though the study of material relics is not, strictly speaking, philology. It's not a study of languages or text. Uh, but the same people, were often engaged in both enterprises. And so antiquarians tend to apply to the study of ancient relics like coins or buildings, what have you, tend to apply the same cast of mind that textual philologists are using.
0: Now, at this point, is there an explosion in knowledge, a number of texts,
1: Uh, There is certainly an explosion in the number of texts, but even more in the number of languages um, uh, uh, that Europeans know about. Um, I think it's probably incorrect, however, to say that somehow the emergence of of, uh, modern disciplines, that is to say the splitting up of humanistic scholarship into unconnected areas of study, I think it's wrong to say that that was inevitable, and I say that because even if you go back in the early modern period, uh, people are dealing with vast quantities of information, and
0: also they don't have the technologies we have now. You know, they didn't have computers; everything was being or typewriters. Everything was being done manually. That's right. Which. Uh, when you describe some of the, the projects that some of your scholars in your book are, are doing, I'm thinking, how do they do that? Because, we, you know, we, can do, we do a lot of stuff with our, our computers now mm-hmm. that I can't imagine that people were doing manually. It, oh, yeah.
1: I mean, and one of the, one of the consequences <laughs> of this is that a really good memory helped a lot. <laughs> so, so that uh, a, a philologist studying, say, uh, ancient Roman text if that person could remember you know, everything that he had read in uh, other Roman texts, he could bring that to bear on the particular text he was trying to study. And, the, and one of the characteristics of the great philologists of the 17th, 18th, and uh, earlier 19th century is that they had phenomenal memories.
0: Right. And I would I, have
1: been a disaster.
0: And also, <laughs> to some of these scholars, so to be a scholar of any weight, uh, you had to have a lot of time. <laughs> you did. And so most of these people were, what, elites? Uh, most of these people are, are people who weren't earning a living doing this. This was a, a almost like an, a, an amateur at a very high level.
1: Right. I mean, the the distinction between amateur and professional
0: right, in it
1: was- it really doesn't make sense in the early modern. Right. Uh, and uh, so, uh,
0: these are monks and these are uh, uh wealthy people. Well, who are these them, people?
1: Most of them by the seventeenth and eighteenth century uh are clerics of some kind or another, no longer monks. Yes, uh-huh. uh, some are monks, but not not most of them. Um they often increasingly have some kind of a connection to a university. Um if you look at uh you know, British philologists, for example, in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, um they're almost all uh, either fellows of the uh one of the colleges uh uh or they are clerics who have a uh, let's say a, a country parish um and they have lots of time on their hands uh yeah, particularly if they choose to devote themselves to learning rather than to their parishioners uh, and, and so that's that's where scholarship comes from
0: Okay, so That's the, one
1: reason why there are almost no female philologists prior to the late 19th century.
0: Somebody's, got, somebody's <laughs> got to keep the world going. <laughs> uh, so you've got, you've got these, uh, at this point I, I noticed in the book that you were talking about that there was a, that the people who were doing the teaching in the universities were different from the people who were doing research,
1: well, or, or, there's or, overlap.
0: There's overlap, but a lot of the people, there were a lot of people doing research and writing. They were not
1: connected te- with a college or university,
0: or who were also not teaching in the college or mm-hmm. university. They were fellows mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. research fellows. Right. Right. Okay. Um, so, how did this fragmentation of philology into all these different mm-hmm. modern disciplines happen? And I know that's a. I'm asking a big question because mm-hmm. you spent several chapters <laughs> working on that. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, you've got. Literature, anthropology, religion, history, art history. Uh, specifically, I would like for you to concentrate more on history because that's my particular interest. Okay. But um, tell it's us a story.
1: It's a it's a, a complicated story to which two thirds of the book is devoted, um, and uh, it's a it's a story which I now think I understand pretty well empirically as what actually happened. I'm still sometimes puzzling about why. It happened. Uh, and I and I hope eventually to write a book on the emergence of the modern idea of disciplinarity uh, as a way of seeing why this happened, because there's an interaction between really two phenomena. One phenomenon is the uh, increasing tendency of scholars, not all scholars, but most scholars to focus on one aspect of humanistic learning um so that for example uh george tickner at harvard who is the uh the, really the founder of the study of spanish literary history um uh he, he has kind of broad interests but his scholarship really focused relentlessly on spanish literature and its history um so that's one thing that's going on, and I think that does have something to do with the uh, vast range that humanistic scholarship now covers. Um, the other thing going on is the emergence of this idea of a discipline and the idea that, properly speaking, scholarly expertise should concentrate on one area of study. That... Is, a, is harder for me to understand uh, the origin of. I think it has something to do with uh, the, the, the process, out, processes outside the world of scholarship, like professionalization, um, uh, the division of labor in, in many areas of life. Um, uh, but whatever the origins of the idea of disciplinarity, it's there. And that is a very powerful influence on why this process of well division of labor within humanistic scholarship really becomes more rigid, turns into uh, uh, modern disciplines.
0: Now that all these disciplines, the modern disciplines we think about that are humanistic, have some have things in common mm-hmm. at the root, mm-hmm. which all come from philology. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. They are, if you leave aside philosophy as, you know, it's one of the humanistic disciplines in the modern American universities, at least the, the British say they, they, they often do things differently and, and, and how is philosophy outside of the humanities? Um, uh, but aside from philosophy, all of the modern humanistic disciplines and a few that we don't think of as part of the humanities, but rather as part of the social sciences. And here I'm thinking primarily of cultural and social anthropology, uh, they are all ultimately grounded in philology. It's not to say that there are not other influences on those disciplines. There certainly are. uh, Certain aspects of philosophy, uh, for example, play an important part in the emergence of literary criticism as opposed to literary history. Um, And uh, uh, other aspects of philosophy, particularly the invention of aesthetics in the 18th century, uh, uh, play a, a shaping role in some aspects of art history. Uh, But all of the humanities and social and cultural anthropology have most of their foundations in philology uh, and the closely associated antiquarianism that I was, that I talked about earlier. And so they, they tend usually to, uh, 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 share a lot methodologically. They tend, for example, to put, uh, uh, a fair amount of emphasis on understanding the history of the phenomenon as a way of understanding the nature of that phenomenon, why it has come to be the way it is. They tend to be comparative in nature. That's an important part of the uh, toolkit of most of uh, the modern humanities disciplines, and that, too, comes from philology. Um, and they tend to be often, not always, but, but often very interested in context, in 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 and, uh, and how the object of study, whether that's a novel or a, uh, historical development or, uh, a, uh, uh, anthropological study, how the object of study fits into some larger context that helps to make it more understandable and give meaning. And those are all things
0: that come from philology. So let's talk about history. Okay. Before we had a history that was based in the text, mm-hmm. in text, and mm-hmm. and philology had a huge emphasis on text mm-hmm. and sources, documentary oh. evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this phil- philosophical history. Mm-hmm. Can you can you talk about philosophical history a little bit and how it went into the the text sure. in context? Sure. Okay.
1: Sure. Um, uh, philosophical history is a phenomenon, really, of the 18th century of the, the Enlightenment. Uh, I'm using, I'm putting air quotes around the word Enlightenment because it's a complicated word. Uh, Voltaire is probably its best-known practitioner. And it really is a sort of history teaching by example, uh, and uh, the authors of philosophical histories are much less interested in the reliability of their sources than they are in in a good narrative that that uh, has uh, moral implications for the present world.
0: Let me ask you about that. Um, is there a place today, and I'm moving forward because if we're at, at this point, is philosophical history still a possibility?
1: Um, I think it is. I don't think we would necessarily recognize it as history.
0: Right. It would be... Something else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What? Cultural criticism? Something like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, go, so go, let's go back to what you were talking about. Uh, Philosophical history with Voltaire Mm -hmm. and how just teaching by example.
1: So you get in philosophical history, you get uh, uh, a a much stronger emphasis on narrative than in forms of study uh, in the past. Uh, uh, In, say, medieval chronicles, for example, there really isn't narrative in our sense. Uh, and that gives, there certainly is narrative in ancient Roman history uh, or in ancient Greek histories, uh, uh, in Thucydides or, or Tacitus, say. Uh, but that kind of falls away from the study of the past and is recovered by philosophical historians in the 18th century. And that is a very important component of history as we now understand it. Um, uh Even when we write monographs that say uh, uh are not chronological in nature uh and don't have what we would recognize as a storytelling narrative as at their heart, we think of them as kind of contributing to a larger overall story of the past and uh, a narrative so that's one important component of academic history as a discipline we understand, but the other important component of academic history is a very strong uh, stress on documentary sources, on texts that are analyzed for their reliability and then used to uh, produce the facts, and again, I'm using air quotes here for listeners, uh, that uh, that go to make up a historical narrative. That is a very complicated story, how we got that. You see it developing in the later 18th century, most strikingly in Given in his History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Um, Gibbon is very attracted to the philosophical narrative uh, of someone like Voltaire, but is, unlike Voltaire, very interested in the philological underpinnings of the information on which that narrative is built. Uh, so he's very uh, committed to, he's not himself a philologist, but he relies very heavily on philologists' for his source material. And so you had in Gibbon, really, uh, the first great example of someone that we would recognize as a historian, quote-unquote, in the modern academic sense. That doesn't mean to say that it's just all a smooth development from there to the modern historian. Um, it's there. There's lots of modes of doing history in the early 19th century. And the, the textual documentary based history really only triumphs towards the middle and later nineteenth century
0: which brings up the issue of archives mm-hmm. which you don't really talk about very much in your book but this, mm-hmm. there's probably a whole history of that could be written on just mm-hmm. archives and mm-hmm. uh, compiling archives mm-hmm. and what's in the archives mm-hmm. and how reliable archives are and what they you know bring in and what mm-hmm. they keep out mm-hmm. and historians are depending on archivists and mm-hmm. what they collected mm-hmm. to, to, to build their, their story. Right. Uh, do you have any comments on that?
1: Um, well, I do talk a little bit about archives and they are, um, uh, the archives originate really is, as, as a way of keeping records for practical purposes. Uh, monasteries keep records of their charters and their foundational documents and the, and the grants that are made to them by kings and, uh, 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 late medieval and early modern monarchies start to keep records of that sort um, uh, as a way of uh, uh, basically providing a legal foundation for what they want to do. So you've got those those archives uh, emerging as ways of keeping track of your property and your powers. <laughs> um, and then in the uh, late eighteenth and early nineteenth century, uh, the uh, understanding of an archive and these are still principally archives maintained by governments you know but the understanding of an archive broadens it becomes to be thought of as a potential source not just for legitimizing the government's activities but a p- potential source for uh, historical understanding one of the things that happens in the wake of the American revolution is that that in various states mostly in the northeast um, uh, groups of people come together to try to preserve the records of the revolution so that later generations can, can uh, understand that story accurately. Uh, and uh, so you, you get these various projects in the early 19th century to uh, protect and preserve and improve um, archives. Again, there's still mostly archives of political developments, but they are understood now as places where historians are going to go to be able to tell their stories.
0: Okay. So I'm going to spend a little time on where we are today. Have we lost touch with the importance of language? Do you think that we think that uh, politics or psychology is more important than language? Is there a loss of, of focus on language?
1: Um Well, I think there is not, of course, among linguists,
0: right? No, but among Uh, among
1: uh, but among the general educated public, I think there is. Uh, In the 19th century, uh, uh, almost any well-educated person would have uh, understood the language and the study of language as an important part of of, of the intellectual heritage.
0: And that's what I noted about the educational process, particularly in the 19th century. Mm how much language was required for undergraduate students in terms of, you know, like you said, Greek, Hebrew, Latin. Mm -hmm. And before you could do history, before you did anything else, you had to really be able to deal and handle different languages Mm -hmm. well. And we don't have that rigor.
1: We don't. Now, uh, it also has to be said that by the 19th century that the enormous amount of Latin, particularly, that was required in, in education, um, was a dinosaur. You know, Latin had, in earlier centuries, a very practical uh, purpose. That is to say, it was uh, the language not just of learning, but the language of government, the language of international relations. And so so learning Latin was a first step to being not just a cleric, but to being uh, a uh a government bureaucrat, say, a diplomat um, in the early modern yeah. period. And it hangs on because it's a badge, I think, because it's a badge of elite learning. Okay. It separates but the But would
0: you say that off. today we could probably, if we're studying the 19th century, 18th, 19th century, how do we do that without having a deep understanding of German mm-hmm. and French?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I quite agree. I mean, one of the things that has happened in my lifetime as an historian is that uh, the study of language, for historians as part of your preparation to be an historian, has really been marginalized. Um, you still, of course, a, a German historian still knows German well, a French historian still knows French well, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But American historians and historians of Britain often don't know any foreign language.
0: Right, and I think, doesn't that constrain the, the kinds of histories we're going to write? It's very difficult to engage in transnational histories mm-hmm. um, in understanding that the America within a broader mm-hmm. world if we don't have other languages besides English.
1: Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Um, I could not have written this book if I had not been forced uh, in grad- I never, I never studied a modern language in my higher education. I uh, uh, or my high school. I had four years of Latin in high school, which was required at my Jesuit high school in Dallas. Um, and I had a semester of Latin in college. Never a modern language. I learned French and German uh, because they were the languages that really uh, an intellectual historian was understood to need um, when I was. Uh, in graduate school in the uh, early 1970s. Um, I learned Spanish because you had to pass two language requirements, two language exams in your first year of graduate study. You couldn't go on to your second year. Um, And I was uh, teaching high school at the time I was in my first year of graduate school. I I taught myself French to read French the the summer before I started grad school. I knew I needed German. I knew I wasn't going to be able to learn it. In my first year. So, I, uh, 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 having Latin and French, I was able to cram, uh, enough Spanish to pass the Spanish mm-hmm. exam. So, and then I took German as a summer program, uh, the next summer. Um, and so by then I had three modern languages. Um, and later when I started to work on Norton, who was among other things a great Dante scholar, I knew I needed Italian. And so I, I, Took Italian at the University of Michigan where I was then teaching with all the freshmen <laughs> and and so you know and I and picked up a little bit of Dutch and my Latin is still not not great but workable so w- without those languages i couldn't I really couldn't have written this book
0: so I think we're, it sounds like we're really constraining our our possibilities uh, by not by stepping away from language requirements I think so now, um, you are the professor emeritus. And so and you know that you know the crisis that's going on in the humanities.
1: I know uh, of I know I know the dialogue about this course. Okay. okay. The,
0: How do you see that?
1: Um I uh, I see it as a little more complicated than a lot of the prophets of doom, if you will.
0: Okay. Um
1: uh it's uh it is true that enrollments in the humanities at um elite universities like Harvard and Stanford have tended to decline and sometimes decline very dramatically in recent years. Um, I know that in a lot of state universities, the humanities are under financial pressure uh, because you have politicians like the governor of Florida who think that it's kind of a waste of time to spend state money on on something that doesn't have a immediate economic use. Um, and uh, uh, so there are there are elements of this story which, which talk about crisis, but probably given the expansion of higher education, um, there are probably a larger number of people taking courses in some area of the humanities than uh, was true in the first half of the 20th century, which we sometimes think of as the, you know, the glory days of the humanities. Um, So I think it's a, a complex story Um, and part of the expansion of higher education has brought into higher education people whose purpose for going to a community college or a state college uh, or even an elite private university, their purpose is really uh, primarily to better themselves economically, to prepare themselves for the job market. Um, And so you have all of those Stanford students uh, who are not Enrolling in the human not majoring in the humanities at least what are they doing they're doing computer sciences um, and uh, uh, so so there is a
0: but do you feel like we're,
1: the humanities are under pressure they're going undergoing change I don't know that there's a crisis
0: okay do you feel that uh, an educated person today has let's say has a college degree should have a strong foundation in the humanities and that that may be that that's weak weakening.
1: Um, I, I do think that's true. Um, I think that uh, having a grounding in history and literature and anthropology in particular, give you a broader understanding of your fellow human beings. Um, And they also may give you certain skills, uh, writing and analysis and so forth that may feed into, may improve your your work in other areas. I do think all that's true. I also think it's true that it has never been the case that the majority of our fellow citizens have had that kind of background, uh, or even had the opportunity to have that kind of background.
0: Now, I started the interview talking to you about the disciplinary straitjacket, Mm-hmm. which I think you, you feel that, that that probably needs a little bit more openness across mm-hmm. disciplines.
1: Yes. Um, one of the things that has struck me in studying the emergence of the modern humanities is that humanists actually often tend to be less flexible and sometimes less open to cross-disciplinary work than natural scientists do. Um, particularly, uh, in physics and biology, um, or the biological sciences. Um, so I think that, uh, if, if humanists were to recognize how much they have in common, uh, in the emergence of their areas of study, I think they might become less narrow. They might, uh, be more open to cross-disciplinary work. Um, they might, um, uh, even return to broader conceptions of of what their disciplines mean,
0: and it seems to me like uh, intellectual historians are really kind of poised to do that because we can we can use uh, all kinds of texts, uh, not just you know documentary evidence. We mm-hmm. can look at we can look at poetry, and we can mm-hmm. look at novels, and mm-hmm. we can look at a multitude of different things, mm-hmm. even material culture. I think, mm-hmm. and popular culture to construct our narratives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? What do you feel about? Uh, now,
1: most of what you've mentioned, with the exception of material objects, takes the form of text, as even in studying popular culture, uh, intellectual historians, at least, mm-hmm. tend to do it not by, so much by watching movies as by studying textual remains of popular culture.
0: Okay. So what do you feel that your book is... What do you think that people should take away from your book? What is the main thing you want people to get from reading this book? It's, it's, it's a very erudite book, like the people that you cover. Uh, it, it's, it's full of challenges. I think it may, I felt really small reading it. Uh, (laughs) meaning in comparison to, to the people who, uh, have come before us and their Mm -hmm. amazing grasp of So many fields of knowledge Mm -hmm. and jumping from one field of knowledge to another without computers, without all the modern, you know, (laughs) gadgets that we have to keep us uh, abreast of what's going on and their language, their focus on language, their uh, really uh, grasp of the meaning and importance of language. I just felt like, wow. Um, well, I don't. I'm not sure I could ever meet that standard.
1: I I, uh, I feel like a midget too when I <laughs> contemplate the people uh, before us. Michael O'Brien, the great intellectual historian at Cambridge, who unfortunately died of cancer this spring, um, much too young, um, uh, told me that he used to keep, uh, when he was a graduate student, I guess, used to keep a portrait of Erasmus. On his wall in the roomy his study, I guess, um, uh, just to remind him what this was all about. <laughs> uh, and it is a it is a kind of daunting uh, story. It also, I think, can be an inspiring story. I mean, these are uh, if 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 we feel like midgets compared to these people, well, maybe that feeling might inspire us to try to grow a little bit uh, to. Uh, uh, to stand on the shoulders of giants and uh, as uh, um, Newton, among others, said. Um, and I think that this story may also remind uh, scholars that uh, in the humanities, that their field is not as narrow as they might have been taught to think it is in graduate school, that it is uh, the historians and literary scholars and so forth have much more in common than uh, than what separates them, and they ought to be able to work together more closely. Um, and they shouldn't be afraid. A literary scholars should not be afraid of writing history. Historians should not be afraid of writing, writing about literature. That that uh, these are things which are perfectly legitimate because they are bred into. Uh, our genetic heritage, so to speak, as as humanists, I think general readers, um, uh, particularly those who have gone to college, um, might take away from this story uh, a an understanding of how their their studies and their current reading interconnect, of of how all of this hangs together. When I was still teaching and, um, and my bread and butter was, uh, a, a survey course of American intellectual history, uh, at the end of the semester, particularly in the, when I was teaching the second half of American intellectual history, it was a very common experience for students to come to me who were majors in, you know, literature or sociology or whatever and say, You know, I now understand for the first time where my major fits in the larger world of knowledge, Um, and I think that that's something that that maybe a lot of people, readers of this book, might might learn.
0: I definitely think this book could be used for an introduction to the humanities.
1: It's being used. I I, I discovered. Okay, yeah, it's
0: excellent for introduction to humanities. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Jim. Um, appreciate your time. You've been very I, generous. I
1: enjoyed it very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at This is your host, Lillian Barger.